The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. All right, good morning everyone and welcome to the King's Chapel. If you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you could join us on this morning. So Pastor Mark and his family are wrapping up their final couple days of vacation on the beach. So just keep them in prayer as they, just that God would continue to refresh Pastor Mark and his family um, in their time away. My name is Tyler, as Pastor Brennan said. It's my privilege today to continue our journey through the book of Mark. So we're going, you may remember from two weeks ago, uh, we had a passage on taxes. So that was fun. And so today we're going to continue on in Mark chapter 12. So if you want to turn in your Bible um, or on your phone or device that you have to, ma- to Mark chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died, leaving no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead." but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our hearts before you as we look at this text, and we just ask that in our moments together, Lord, that you'd open up this passage to us, that you'd speak to us, God, that you'd use me simply as a mouthpiece, put a guard over my mouth and speak. Let me speak only that which you want, your body, your people that are here today to hear. But may we have open ears, all of us, God, myself included, to hear what you are saying to us this morning. And may it not just result in hearing a message, maybe a couple of thoughts to take away, but God, actually be seeds of transformation in our lives, Lord, that you would use it to make us more like Jesus or maybe to bring us, God, to a life-changing relationship with Jesus for the first time. So do your work this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's just back up a moment and talk about the context here. So if you back up a little bit, right before this happens where the Sadducees come to Jesus, it actually says back in verse 13, and Pastor Mark preached this message, it says some of the Pharisees and Herodians had come to Jesus. So let's just talk a little bit about cultural context. There was a bunch of different groups at this time. So Israel at this time was being ruled by Rome, and they had limited rights. Essentially, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see some of, the, some of those implications. So you had these different groups with different ideas on how to make their world better. Not that unlike today, right? 
different camps of thought. And so two of those groups mentioned um, throughout the Gospels, you had the Herodians. So the Herodians, they believed in using essentially manipulation and trying to get close to power and, and to kind of control who would be the next rulers of their provinces or areas. Whereas the Zealots, another group, they believed, they, both political groups, the Zealots were over on the other side and they just wanted to overthrow Rome so they, with, with violence. And so they were constant movements there of, of efforts to, to undermine and overthrow Rome. Whereas other groups like the Herodians, again, were trying to just get close to power and influence power, manipulate power. Then you have these, these two other groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Sadducees, they were, they were kind of this, this higher class. They had a lot of wealth, a lot of influence, a lot of power. They ruled the temple, whereas the Pharisees were more of your, your middle class. They, they operated more on the synagogue level, so these smaller synagogues where the Jewish people would gather all throughout the villages throughout Israel. So the Pharisees, basically, they would take the written word of God and they would add thousands of commands, literally, to the words of God to say, this is how you apply it. Okay, and so there was just this mammoth amount of information that they would teach, and a lot of their problems were with Jesus were he didn't honor their traditions, right? And so they would constantly come at him for that. Whereas the Sadducees were a little bit on the flip side, okay? So they had a lot of power, a lot of political influence, a lot of control. They were very logic-based. Um, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, which was known as the books of Moses. So if you go into the beginning of your Bible there, basically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was what they held to. They didn't agree with anything else, basically. They, they didn't really teach the prophets. They didn't believe in any of the other teachings that, that the Pharisees and other Jewish people would. And they did not believe in the resurrection or even an afterlife. They didn't even believe in spirits or angels, any of that. They're very logic-based, what I can see. They believed in the law. That was something that had been passed down. Um, but they didn't believe in all these other things. Now, where would this apply today? You know, what, what might a modern-day Sadducee look like? Even if you look back at some of the founding fathers, right, of America, you could take a guy like Thomas Jefferson. He did hold to certain elements of Christianity, but there's actually a copy of his Bible where he took, and anything he didn't agree with, he just would cut it out, okay? And so he was, oh, this isn't true. This isn't true. And he, he just had his own, you know, was like, I'm going to agree with this and not with this. It's any time you take the words of God, essentially, and cut what you don't agree with out. That's what the Sadducees had done. As we look at the question they bring before Jesus, you know, questions can be very good. Sometimes it's almost said like, all questions are good. There's no dumb question, right? Who's ever heard that? Well, there is different motivations, underlying motivations for questions. I think we can all agree with that. The, the purpose of this question, similar to the one on the taxes that had happened in the passage before, was to trip Jesus up. We're going to stump you, Jesus. What do you do with this? Okay? They're taking something they believe and saying, hey, because of this, your teachings don't make sense. Now, diving in a little bit into what they're saying, let's just look at this as well. So, so the law of the, the widow and the brother-in-law. We're, we're not going to exhaustively go through the Old Testament and, you know, and, and, and dive into all of the intricacies of this law. Here's, here's what I want to cover. The Old Testament intent behind this, this command, this, this law, right, was they lived in a time period where women like widows in particular, if you look at the teachings of Moses as they're coming out, so they, they, they had been slaves for over 400 years. And these people 
didn't value themselves or the most vulnerable among them, especially, right? So if you're, if you're not even worth anything, you're just a slave and you've had this mindset passed down for hundreds of years, think of the diminishment. I mean, if, if I'm not even that important, how much less important is a widow, right? Husband's gone, probably cursed by God, that's why he died. You know, there, there may be some of that thought. And so the command of Moses given by God was one of compassion. It was one of caring for the most vulnerable among them. And that was the purpose and intent. And also because the land was given out by father's names, okay? And so when they went into the promised land, as they took over different parts of this land, essentially, if a husband dies and, you know, this widow is left, she would have, her land could be taken from her. And so there was a lot of intent behind this law of compassion and of preservation of legacy for the people in that time period. It was essentially a social system at that time. There's, in the New Testament, there's other applications, other scriptures that we can learn from in terms of how the early church handled widows. You may remember in Acts where there were some widows that were not cared for as well as the others. So at that time, the Jewish widows, you know, the, the widows, some of the widows were being taken care of, whereas those that spoke Greek, they, they were not being taken care of as well. You can read that in the early portion of the book of Acts. And so the, the seven deacons were raised up to make sure that food was distributed and that all of these widows were cared for. So we see the heart of God throughout Scripture in various ways in terms of caring for the vulnerable, and that's what this was. As we look at Jesus' answer here, one of his replies are, he says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And he says that in the life to come, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's a mystery about the life to come that we're limited in imagining, Right? And what Jesus is saying essentially here is there's a higher plane of existence in the resurrection and the new life to come that you can't wrap your mind around that will allow all of this to make sense. It's not just a continuation of life as we know it. Now, I know there's the very familiar cultural movie, right? It's a Wonderful Life where, you know, at the end there's the angel wings, right? And he's going to be an angel. So this, you notice Jesus didn't say, you're going to be angels, okay? That, that's not what he says. He says, you're going to be like angels. And he's speaking in a context where they, they had an understanding, teachings of what angels were. And there was a mystery, mysterious element there. And he's saying, you're going to be like angels. There's going to be another dimension to reality that you can't imagine now. And then he references the burning bush. He says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, and he, and, he, and he brings up this story. So it's interesting that Jesus meets them where they're at. You see, remember, the only portion of scriptures, they had the Old Testament at that time, the only portion of the scriptures that they believed in were the five books of Moses, right? And he speaks to them from those books, right? A story that they would believe in. Moses was their guy, all right? He, he, was the, he was the one that wrote the book that they believed in, right? The five books that they believed in. And so he uses those books to address them. Now, I just, I just want to ask the question, when, when he says this, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You know, I, I think the intent behind our hearts 
when we approach scriptures matters. And I just want to ask you a question. Do you read the Bible just to gain knowledge or from a genuine hunger to know God? In John 5, 39, Jesus says, again, speaking to these religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And Jesus points out a very important thing in the passage we're looking at as well as this other passage in John. I love this book. This book is powerful. This book has changed my life, and I know many of you as well. But apart from the Spirit of God, apart from this being a means to know God, it's just a book with words on a page. And the power within this book is simply the person that's behind it, which is God himself. And so I think it's important for us to to recognize, like the Sadducees, sometimes we can take the wrong approach and it leads to to a wrong belief. And that's what he's addressing. So back to the passage here as he addresses them. It says, For the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage of the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So again, he uses stories they agreed with, and he, and he says, hey, this, this story, and we'll look more at it in just a few moments here, about Moses before the burning bush. He says, this is God speaking. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was their God. I am their God. In other words, present tense. They're alive when God appears in this burning bush. And he's saying, you're missing the whole point. You believe in these teachings of Moses. It's right there. It's right there. God himself says, I am. You know, sometimes, again, we can approach God as past tense and future tense, right? What God's done and what he's going to do, and we can miss him in the moment, And as we continue with some applications here this morning, I want to challenge all of us. Are your stories about God primarily about what God's done in the past or what you hope he's going to do in the future? Or is the I am showing up in your daily life? And if he's not, if he's not, this is not about condemnation or guilt, friends. This is about God wanting to meet us this morning as the I am. He's wanting to show up in our lives Daily, hour by hour, do you know I am? There's three primary types of people in this passage that I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at. The doubter, the desperate, and the disillusioned. So the doubter is represented by the Sadducees in that they picked and choose what to believe. They doubted certain aspects of what God had revealed himself They certainly didn't believe beyond those first five books. I want to, as we we look at how Jesus addressed them, I want us to look back at this story real quick in Exodus chapter 3. If you want to turn there, feel free. Exodus chapter 3, verses starting in verse 1. So this is the story that Jesus is addressing that they would have known well. In fact, many of these men probably had it memorized. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. If you're here this morning and there's parts of the Bible or what God said that, that you, you know, you, you're wrestling with doubt, um, first of all, we want this to be a place where you can wrestle with those doubts, amen? So keep coming and, and make this community your home. But as we look at this passage here that Jesus used the story from to talk to these men, the first thing in this story about Moses that's really interesting is he says, take off your sandals because the very ground in which you're standing is holy. We are standing right now on a giant blue-green ball that's spinning, depending on the location, your location on earth, between 700 and 1,000 miles per hour. We're spinning around that fast, okay? While simultaneously hurtling through space around the sun, okay, at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. Like, can you wrap your head around that? Meanwhile, we now know that the universe is expanding at an exponential rate going outwards. It's already beyond comprehension, but it's expanding outwards at an exponential rate. So that's big picture. What about small picture? Every adult in this room has 60,000 miles of blood vessels running through your body, which is enough to cross, to circle the globe, the earth, two times. That's how many blood vessels are in your body. You have seven trillion nerves in your body that connect your brain, your spinal cord, and the, you know, transmitting signals. That's trillion with a T, seven trillion nerves in your body. Your tongue, all of us have one, right, hopefully this morning, has 8,000 taste buds on your tongue. Now, a few of us have burned some off with coffee or spicy foods, so maybe that's cut in half or something. But 8,000 taste buds. So what's the point of all that? If you find yourself in a place of doubting this morning, maybe relating a little bit to the Sadducees, I think the, the, the place, sometimes we want the revelation, well, God would just show up and reveal himself to me. I think the first step, first of all, is, is slowing down, giving God time and space. You notice Moses looked and he saw, and then he went to check it out. And then he heard God's voice. And then God says, take off your sandals. And we read in that story, he took off his sandals, came closer, and he bowed down before God. The place of revelation, some of us want God to reveal himself to us maybe for the first time or once again, we're, we're in this dry place. It starts, it starts with reverence. There's no, there be no revelation without reverence. And so this morning, as we think about the incomprehensible grandeur of the universe and the magnitude of even what's going on within our own body that we can't understand or wrap our minds around. This is the God that created all of that with a spoken word. Let's humble ourselves before him. That's the place that revelation starts. 
The second type of person that we see in the text going back to Mark chapter 12, we see the desperate, represented by the widow. It's kind of just glossed over in this text, right? I don't know if this was a true story or not. Like, right? Maybe they just made it up, maybe not. I don't know. But regardless, in this, in, in this, they're, they're giving an example. Do you realize she lost seven husbands? Seven times she buried the person that she was married to. Seven times. And then it just says, and then she died. Never had kids, which in that culture, you're essentially cursed, the barren womb. I want to speak to some of you this morning where you're here and nothing in your life makes sense. There's loss all around you where you've lost loved ones. You're going through things that the rest of us probably can't understand, maybe even imagine. There is no doubt in a room this size with the people here, tragedy represented, where you've gone through or are going through indescribable loss, brokenness, heartache. Maybe in some cases it's your own decisions that have led you down a road of heartbreak. But you're in this place of desperation. I want to remind us this morning, there is hope beyond this life. And for some of us, some of us, only the resurrection is going to make sense of what we've went through. And only a life to come Jesus gets you. Remember the story when Jesus was on his way to literally call Lazarus, his friend who had died days before, out of the grave. What does it say? On his way there, he knows what he's going to do. He's not worried. He's not afraid. Oh, what if God, you know, what, what, what if this doesn't work? No, 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 no. Jesus knows what's about to happen, but the heartache of people wailing and the loss It says Jesus wept. Two of the most powerful words in the New Testament. Jesus wept. Why did he weep when he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Because he feels our pain. You see, Hebrews says we have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the things that we go through. And this morning, even though none of us can fully comprehend or understand or maybe even sympathize fully with what you've gone through, there's a God who can. And there's a day coming when every wrong will be made right, every tear will be, will be wiped dry, every evil tyrant will stand before the judge of the universe and all things will be made new and experience their ultimate meaning and purpose in him and in the life to come. And God wants to give us hope this morning if that's you. And that's what Jesus is saying. No doubt in that crowd, there was some that identified with that widow as these men, these religious leaders, trivialized her suffering in light of a theological thing that they hoped to trip Jesus up with. And Jesus gets to the heart of it. There's a resurrection coming that will make sense of everything. And you're missing the point, he says. The power of God is beyond what you can imagine. Lastly, The disillusioned. The disillusioned. In this, we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna look at Moses just for a moment here, as our last example. 
the disillusion. This is the story that Jesus uses to address them. And it was a story, again, you got to remember, when Jesus references things in passing, it's here, it's a very short little blip. But in their minds, the, the hearers, they, this was drilled into them. Remember, a lot of these religious leaders had memorized, some of them, the, basically the whole Old Testament, but certainly the first five books. They could quote it from memory. So when he quotes this little story about Moses, for us, we have to look back and read it. For them, they knew it. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew what he was referencing. And so let's, let's look back at this story. So Moses, who was he? His entire generation, all of the young babies born during his time period, with few exceptions, were killed by a wicked tyrant of a leader, Pharaoh, in Egypt. Hundreds of years before, they had fled to Egypt to escape a worldwide, or at least that, that region, famine. And now they'd been there hundreds of years. They had multiplied. The Egyptians grew afraid of the numbers that were in their midst and essentially made them slaves in order to control them. And then they were still multiplying, so Pharaoh says, we're going to wipe a generation out. And so Moses was born into that setting. His mother, his mother puts him in this little boat, baby bed boat, basically, puts him in where she knew the daughter, the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh would come, and she has compassion on this baby and raises this baby as her own. However, he always knew something wasn't right. We don't have a lot of details, but between Hebrews, there's some references to, to some choices he made when he came of age, and the Exodus story we know that he never fully fit in. He would have been trained in the best of education available as essentially a grandson to Pharaoh. But he grew up an outsider. And that when he came to age, he saw the disparity between the Egyptians and his people, somehow had found out who his people were. And so he knew that he was one of them. And he watched as his people were brutalized and whipped and mistreated day after day and treated as nothing in this slave-oriented culture. And one day he'd had enough. And he watched as one of his people was brutally whipped. And when he thought no one was looking, he went and grabbed that guy and he killed him. See, he knew something of the calling of God on his life to set his people free, to be a means for that. But I think you could look at that and say he probably wasn't hearing the voice of God as to the how. And so in terror, because he became immediately a wanted man, he fled, fled into the wilderness. He ends up meeting and marrying a woman out there and then working for her dad, his father-in-law, for 40 years. Now let me ask you men a question. Do you think it could be humbling if you were raised in a position of pomp and power and prestige, best of education, by the best culture of the time in terms of advanced Okay, most powerful culture. Do you think it'd be humbling now to be a criminal, outcast, running for your life, and then spend 40 years working for your father-in-law as a shepherd, not a, respect, not a very respected, highly regarded position in that time, out in the middle of the wilderness? Any, any of you, sorry if there's father-in-laws in the room, but any, any of you men, any of you men envy that position? Want to go work for your father-in-law for 40 years? Can we say humbling? Yeah. So if you look at Moses, I think he was in a place of disillusionment. 
And, and I think that there's some people this morning that, that can identify, maybe not with the father-in-law thing, but maybe like you've, you've had some things that God has deposited in you many years ago where you thought you felt God speaking to you that you were going to go do this thing. And maybe some of you even stepped out like Moses did and thought you were taking a God-oriented you know, God risk. And you did some stuff. And you fell flat on your face. And you were embarrassed. And then you were led into a dry place, a wilderness, maybe spiritually speaking. Maybe it was a job situation. Maybe it was a family situation. And you've been humbled day after day, week after week, month after month, and now year after year, and you are in a place of disillusionment. You still show up. You're here in the room. But for you, it's like, yeah, I, I believe, but you're a little cynical. When you hear people talk about the call of God and all of that, yeah, okay, great for them, but been there, done that, didn't really work out. And I think in this room today, there's some dormant callings where God has something for you to do. Look around the world. It's not getting better out there. There's a lot of hurting people. And the darker it gets, the more our lights of Christ are needed. And God is not calling you to sit on the bench any longer, friends. And some of you are sitting on the bench because you think you're not worthy because you failed. You went out and you stepped out and you did what you thought God was calling you to do, but you did it in your own strength and in your own way. And now you've been humbled. And for those that identify with Moses this morning, I want to ask you, implore you, get off the bench. Get back in the game. God still has something for you. You see, in the passage to come, we don't have time to dive into the whole story. God reveals himself. Moses says, who am I supposed to tell these people is setting them free? The stories they heard about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the point of the I am is God is telling Moses, no, not just that God this, I'm here, I'm real, I am has sent you. Not I was, not I was, and not I will be. And some of you are still holding on to I was, and you worship God for what he did in the past, and you've got stories about the past. What is God doing now, friends? What happened this week in your lives? Did you see that person you walked by in Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks with their head on their table and you hear a stirring of God calling you to go and talk to them or pray for them. Are you missing the call of God in your life? And some of us have dormant callings because we no longer believe we are worthy. And you know what? You're right. But he is. And God's spirit is more than enough. No doubt this morning there's little pieces of the doubter, the desperate, and the disillusioned in all of our hearts. Here, here's what I want to close with. Last night, my family and I, we ran a 5K in Clifton. Um, did it for the first time last year. Lily did it by herself. And this year, we we're like, we're going to do this as a family. My youngest did the one-mile fun run, but four of us did the, did the 5K. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a great community event. Some of you guys, I know you're, you're running marathons, and you're like, oh my gosh, what a joke, you know talking about a 5K and did an Ironman, whatever. I, I get it, I get it. You know, you're, you're awesome. But for the rest of us, you know, 5K might, might actually be, you know, a stretch. Okay, so we're out there running. What I love about this environment, first of all, people that live on the road surrounding there, they drive down and they're handing out waters and they're cheering you on and they got bells ringing the whole way. But the most powerful part of the race, okay, you're racing with hundreds of other people, 
The most powerful part of the race is, you know, you go up and you, you know, go up this big hill, you, or, you know, at least for some of us, again, this sizable hill. You turn around, it's like right at the end of the first mile and a half. You, you know, you come back and, and you know, you're, you're obviously tired. It's pretty hot. You're coming back. And as you're rounding that last bend, okay, there's just this, you know, loud, like, bells ringing, everybody's cheering, clapping, go, 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 you got this. And I don't care how tired you are, nobody walks to the finish line, okay? Because you come around the bend, and there's probably 100 people there ringing bells and yelling. It's like you just, oh, I got to go, you know? And so even my 12-year-old, who was in tears after the race, you know, it, 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 it's just like, he, all of a sudden, there's this determination that gets on his face, and he, he runs, you know, and he, he races across the line, and everyone the same way, and we're high-fiving, and everybody's cheering. You know, isn't that a picture of the church, this morning is not about guilt or condemnation. If you find yourself in the place of a doubter or the desperate or even the disillusioned, this is a body. And when one person falls down, the rest of the body lifts them up. And so this morning, as we close, some of you need to be lifted up. And as we end with a final song, if the band can come back up on the stage here, as we end with a final song, I want to ask some of you, to actually step out of your chairs and go receive prayer. Don't be too proud. Again, the first step for some of us to come back into a place of living reality with God is just to humble ourselves and say, yeah, I'm struggling today. Or maybe I'm not struggling, but I want that call of God awakened in my life. I want, like Moses, to know the I am, and then to go to those places that are dark, those places where people are broken, those places where people don't see themselves as anything. And for all of us in this body, let's be that body that when one person's down, we lift them up. And like that race, as you come towards the finish line, right? Come on, you got this. Let's go. And it's not by our strength. It's not by our own might. It's by the power of God, and we keep pointing each other to the one who's got this, who's got this. And let's make sure, brothers and sisters, that our brothers and sisters make it across the finish line, that if you find yourself this morning doubting, if you find yourself desperate, or if you find yourself disillusioned, that there is hope, that Jesus is real. Would you please stand with me? just ask a couple of our leaders to go over to the side here to be ready to, to pray with anyone that, that wants to receive prayer this morning. Lord, we just bow our hearts before you in reverence and we say, God, fill us up. Lord, if there's doubt in our hearts and we're wrestling with the implications of all that you've said in your word, it's okay. Help us to take that first step in reverence and say, <laughs> I don't ever understand everything about the universe or my own body, so I certainly don't understand everything you've said in your word, but I bow myself, reveal yourself to me as the I am. For anyone desperate this morning in a tough place in life, broken, may you heal them. May you wipe their tears. May you remind them of who they are in you. And Lord, for anyone disillusioned that has walked away from their call, to be faithful witnesses, to be ambassadors, to be proclaimers, to pray, praise, and proclaim the hope that you've given us, God. 
May this morning you reawaken that call in their lives and remind them what you've said. You haven't changed. You haven't moved. We just have to come back. We ask you to move in our hearts in Jesus' name.